Hey y'all, it's Bowen here, and this is part of a series of conversations that I'm putting out on my Substack, which is called Decide Nothing. Today I'm talking with Master Coach Robert Ellis, who is the founder of the Coaching from Essence program and of his community of coaches called Futurosity. I met Robert through a close friend of mine who's also a fellow entrepreneur, and I immediately felt was strong, clear, warm presence and his focus on the unique essence of every individual person. As I was editing this episode, I was struck with this realization about love. In the past, I've often confused the feeling of appreciation of love in the present with a desire to feel that feeling for an infinity of time. What I mean is that feeling love, my heart aches to expand that feeling into the future because that seems like the only possible direction that it could expand. What I realized just now is that the reality is that love is already infinite in the present. And so my fantasy of its possible expansion in time is often just a distraction from the greater appreciation of love in the present moment. And that is a big part of why I'm doing this series of conversations to take the opportunity to get to know men that I love and respect more deeply. And Robert, you are certainly one of those men. I look at myself. What do I know? I saw things come into my room. I saw things come into my room. It's not unusual. That's so good to see you. It's good to see you, man. It's been a long time. It has, yeah. It's been well, two and a half years actually since I joined your coaching program. Um, that was in January, right at the beginning of COVID-1. So what's going on for you since then? How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm, I'm real good. A lot has changed since I met you. I met you just before the first cohort of Coaching from Essence. That was January of 2020. There have now been four cohorts online, and the community has grown to over 300 uh, coaches and I'm doing what will probably be the last live coaching from Essence program in September. As you know, I have stage four prostate cancer. And so that's been progressing. I've had 16 rounds of chemotherapy and I'm responding well to that. So that happened. <laughs> Part of your journey. It has been a journey. I'm incredibly happily married to my beloved. And that's wonderful. I love my work. So yeah, life is good. It's so great to hear. You know, I remember when you two made that move there and yeah. I could feel through you that it felt so right. So the question that I wanted to start with is, is there a particular time that you feel that you became the version of yourself that you are now? You know, that's a really interesting question because as you know, I went through a very dark passage about five or six years ago, 2015 and 2016 were the two hardest years of my life. I was seriously depressed. I had an experience of heartbreak. I was in a relationship that wasn't very healthy. It was on again, off again for about four years. And then when it ended, I was also having heart problems. I had atrial fibrillation. So I had emotional heartbreak and physical heartbreak within a very period of time. I had two heart operations in 2016. And I was seriously, seriously depressed. I mean, to the point of being suicidal. 
And during that time, I really felt mm -hmm. like my old self was disassembled. I mean, my sense of who I was really broke down. And it was a journey putting myself back together. And now I feel in many ways very different from who I was before that passage. But I feel much better now. I'm happier now than I've ever been in my life. But that was a very dark passage <clears throat> where I felt like my personality was kind of taken apart and then reconstructed. I had to reinvent pretty much my whole mm. life. And some things didn't change. The reason the program is called Coaching from Essence is that I believe very strongly that we all have an essence. And by essence, I mean that we all have a natural way of being in the world that's good. We all have a natural way of being in the world that adds value without any real thought or effort on our part. Our unique medicine. Exactly. We all bring something to the world that, given the right opportunity, is our contribution. Most everything when we're growing up conspires against that. And so what we do instead of creating a life that reflects our essence and is congruent with our essence, what most of us do, is we create a life that's some accommodation to the circumstances we're in that don't support that. We create a false self. And, you know, my false self worked pretty well for almost 60 years. <laughs> and then it just wasn't up to the task of living my life. Yeah, I know what you mean. I didn't feel this way then, but in retrospect, I now think of what happened to me as the dark ally. If we won't go to our demons, our demons will come to us. And that's what happened to me. I was so unconscious in my life that I needed this kind of wake up call to get back on track, to get back in alignment with my essence, my better self. I appreciate you sharing that. And it sounds very familiar because I've been through a similar journey. And so was there like a rope that was lowered from the sky at a certain point that you began to be able to climb up or, you know, a light that began to show you the way out that dark passage? It was not one thing or one event. It was a journey. And the way I think of it, it was a mm -hmm. quest. The real difference between a path and a quest is all we're trying to do is get from A to B. You know, A is where we are now. B is whatever it is we think we want. If you want to stay at A, then stay at A is your B. If your B is something that is predictable, if it's something you already know how to do, if it's not very complicated, doesn't require a lot of resources or cooperation or isn't very aspirational, you can pretty much predict B and you can work your way back from B to A. You can reverse engineer it. And then it's really a project management challenge. You're just looking for the shortest distance between two points. And that's what I call a path. You know, you can kind of figure it out stepwise, get to it. The trick with it is B. We have to ask, where does B come from? For a lot of people, B comes from the past. You know, they've been doing things. And so B is often just another version of something they already know how to do. Or it comes from somewhere else. You know, it comes from their parents or their spouse or their friends or society or whatever it is. We get lots of ideas about what we should be trying to create in our life, you know, or it's something that we want to want. It's an idea that we've taken on, but it isn't really congruent. We don't really want it. 
So that's a path. The thing is, if you're going through a dark passage, <laughs> or if you aspire to something that is more complicated or more aspirational or requires more collaboration or resources or time, et cetera, et cetera, then you can't really predict what the best outcome will look like. So you don't actually want B. Your B is the best thing that you can imagine when you leave A, but what you actually want is something better than you can imagine. When you start, you don't know what's possible for you. And so that journey into the unknown is an adventure because you can't predict it. And that's my idea of a quest. Yes, I see. Yes, the quest is the journey of discovery. That is the definition of adventure is moving into the unknown deliberately. That's right. And so that's also my definition of leadership. You know, leadership mm -hmm. is the ability to navigate the unknown and shepherd other people through the unknown to something better than they can imagine. If you're not doing that, you're on a path, you're a manager. And nothing wrong with that. All of us, much of our life is very path-like. But if you're not on a quest somewhere, your life is probably not very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And the same with an enterprise. If you're in a business, there's a lot of your business, if it's any level of maturity, that is path-like. If you're a startup, you're looking for your path. You're looking for something that you can replicate and scale. But there should always be some part of your business that is quest-like, where you're learning, growing, innovating. Moving into the unknown, absolutely. I love that distinction between path and quest. And I have lived a lot of adventure myself, deliberately moving into the unknown. And I think it's one of the most powerful things that we can do to get back to your own dark passage you had to move into the unknown for me part of that was discovering and then building relationships with parts of myself that i didn't yeah. have relationships with becoming conscious about parts of myself that i wasn't conscious yeah. about and of course that's part of the journey of life and consciousness but was there something specific for you that you hadn't been conscious of that you didn't have a relationship with internally that you had to build a relationship with let me back up a minute when i was seriously depressed i would wake mm -hmm. up every morning and i would ask myself how did this get to be my life you know because i looked at my life and i didn't have a beloved I didn't have very many friends. I wasn't enjoying my work. It was very transactional and not very deep, not very satisfying. I was having serious health problems, you know, two heart operations in 2016. And I didn't like where I lived. In fact, at one point I was living in a room in a house in the Berkeley Hills, sleeping on a mattress on the floor. And, you know, just really feeling lost in my life. Every morning I'd wake up and ask myself, how did this get to be my life? And a lot of mornings I got on Google and searched for how to off myself because I just couldn't see a future. I really felt broken. And the worst part about that was I really thought, what if I have been broken all along and didn't know it? One of the turning points for me was this idea of quest. So I went on a quest and every good quest begins with a question. And my question was, how can I be wholehearted? So you talk about having a relationship with different parts of yourself. What I realized was I was broken in a way, like I was half-hearted everywhere in my life. I had been half-hearted in the relationship that I was in. So it wasn't surprising that it didn't work. I was half-hearted in my work. Mm. 
I was sort of the hired gun. I'd show up and do my gig and leave. It wasn't that I didn't care about the people that I worked with, but I didn't value myself what I had to offer. And I didn't really care enough to create relationships with other people. I was half-hearted in my friendships. I didn't pursue friendships. I didn't make myself available. The biggest part that I needed to have a relationship with was my essence. So at some point in that process, I started mm -hmm. to take an inventory of who I thought I was and why I was here. A few things happened. One was that, you know, I read something about if you're depressed, you know, have a gratitude practice. <laughs> and so I did. I started sure. keeping a journal and I would write down every day what I was grateful for. And some days it was a real stretch, like the sun came up today. <laughs> that was a good day. It was sunny. When you're in a dark place, it seems like there's not that much, but it does help. Absolutely. It was a real stretch. But that gratitude practice really did help. I think of gratitude as the beginner's practice. You know, the first practice is to be grateful for the good things that you have. The advanced practice of gratitude is to be grateful for everything that you have. So I found a way to be right. grateful for what right. was happening to me. I thought, all right, clearly I need to change. This is not who I want to be. Not only is it not who I want to be, but it's not who I really am. I have to enter into a relationship with who I was meant to be, why I came here. You know, what am I here for? And so the practice of gratitude led me to feeling more grateful and abundant. I started to appreciate how much I actually did have, not just materially and so forth, but emotionally and, and my being. I actually had something to offer. I'd also There's read something... somewhere that if you're depressed, one of the best things you can do is try to help somebody else. And so... I thought, well, what do I have to offer? And really what I had to offer was coaching. I mean, that is part of my essence. The first year that I was reinventing myself, probably 90% of the work that I did was pro bono. You know, I would coach anybody and everybody. And up until very recently, when I was having what was for me a full-time practice, always at least a third and sometimes as much as a half of my practice was pro bono. And at the same time, while I was doing that, yeah. the past five years, I've made more money than I've ever made in my life. The practice of generosity mm -hmm. helped me to restore my relationship with myself. That seems to be a key piece of your experience, that generosity and realizing that you had something to give. I wanted to ask you, you said at some point, it, it really sounds like a moment, you realized that I need to change. I certainly experienced the same thing. It probably occurred around a similar time in life for me. I was 48. I mean, it was not all that long ago, really. But the question is then, where did that come from? You know, that realization, right? Because, of course, I had versions of it many, many times previously in life. You know, hints at it, right? That I didn't really pay attention to or wasn't ready to hear. So can you say anything more about that realization? Yeah, I mean, again, it wasn't an event. It wasn't like an aha. It was a gradual awakening. And part of it came from, mm -hmm. you know, again, I went on this quest, how can I be wholehearted? And I thought, how can I be wholehearted in my work? Yeah. What would it look like if instead of being mm -hmm. transactional, I found a way to create relationships with the people that I worked with? I'd had this belief mm -hmm. that um, you can't mix personal and professional. 
I was sort of hiding behind my professional persona and you had to maintain a professional distance. And, and I finally came to the conclusion that mm-hmm. that's bullshit. I firmly yeah, believe right. that you can't separate who you are personally from who you are professionally. Previously, I was doing coaching before, but the coaching I was doing was very skills-based. I'd be hired to coach somebody on their presentation skills because they were doing an IPO or, or something like that, or a keynote, or I'd do an intervention with a manager who needed to learn some basic management skills or something. And I'd be hired and it would be a short-term transactional mm-hmm. sort of thing. And so I wanted to find a way to create relationships. Yeah. So I changed the way that I worked. Um, I looked at my personal relationships and I thought, you know, my personal relationships were pretty transactional. I went on a quest to mm-hmm. create deeper relationships with mm-hmm. people. I, I finally allowed myself to show up yeah. as a vulnerable, imperfect human being instead of this perfect mm-hmm. facade. Mm-hmm. And that changed my relationships. Yeah. Right. It's not all at once, but there was a moment for me where yeah. it finally culminated and I reached a tipping point when I finally became really fully and deeply aware that I yeah. needed to change when I accepted that, when I was able to begin using that as my destination, as you did. It brings to mind another thing that I've been thinking about lately, which is often something that comes up in coaching and comes up in all sorts of contexts. And this is the idea of discipline, right? Of kind of the stick-to-itiveness. It often comes up in the context of change. If we want to change, well, we've got to stick to some sort of a program at all costs, you know, and have the, Mm. you know, the strength to do that. Since you've worked with yourself and with other people so much on change and on these quests, how does mm-hmm. discipline come into that, no. if, you know, if at all? How do you think about discipline? I don't really think about discipline. I mean, mm-hmm. just to clarify, it's not that I think there's anything wrong with discipline. I think discipline is more path-like behavior. There's another important distinction here, which is a lot of people think that B is a goal. I'm not a big believer in goals. The way I think of B is B is not a goal because we don't actually want B. We don't want the best thing that we can imagine. We want something better than we can imagine. Because we know when we go on a journey into the unknown that we don't know what's possible. So we aim for B because we have to have some direction, but it's not our goal. And if it's not our goal, then discipline is of dubious value. What we need instead is courage Mm -hmm. and action. If you're following a plan, if that's what you mean by discipline, that can be detrimental. We need action. Mm -hmm. Like we need the courage to take action. I've been with my beloved now, we're coming up on our five-year anniversary, but somewhere after a year or so, I let her read all of my journals, literally like all of my journals, Mm -hmm. including when I was going through this dark period I used to journal every day because, Mm -hmm. you know, for a while I didn't have that many friends to talk to. So, you know, I would just talk to myself all day and I would journal. And it's like this thick. So I'm holding up maybe, you know, three or four inches thick. I had one copy printed and small type and it's hundreds and hundreds of pages. I let her read everything. Like my deepest, darkest, most Mm. neurotic, crazy thoughts that I never intended for anybody to read. That's courageous for sure. And at the end of it, she said, you were writing about doing the things you're doing now 20 years ago. Why did it take you so long? 
And the reason it took me so long is because yeah. I was fucking scared. I was afraid of yeah, putting myself out in the world and being rejected. I was afraid of showing my true mm -hmm. self to the world and having the world tell me that it wasn't worth anything. And so for most of my life, I fantasized about being myself. And I was somebody else. This fear, I mean, I know this fear. It's so familiar, man. I mean, I look at my journals from 20 years ago and a lot of stuff from the present there too. Yeah. It's uh, most of us settle for what I call a bonsai dream. What I mean by that is it's a beautiful miniature version of our real dream, our real potential. And I, mm -hmm. and I mean no offense to the Japanese. I mean, bonsai are beautiful. But think about how do you create a bonsai? You put it in a small container, you prune it, you hold it back. Restrain it. Yeah. And so that's what happens to us. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. Absolutely. You know, I asked about discipline, not because I'm a big believer. And I've always been against it. But I think that's because I've always had this rigid the idea of discipline is this rigidity. And I've just started recently to think about it yeah. in a more fluid way, more in line with what you said about having the courage to move, the courage to take action and to set a course yeah. and steer for that. Even knowing, of course, that we don't right. exactly know what we're steering for. It's a direction. We're steering into the unknown, right? So putting it that way, to have the discipline to turn the wheel and steer into the unknown. Yeah, that sounds good. You know, that's adventurous. Well, I think of that as courage, a way that I would think about it is more virtuous cycles. You know, habits yes. are good. I meditate every day. But I'm not very disciplined about it. I don't do it at yeah. the same time. I'm not rigid about it. And sometimes mm -hmm. if I'm too tired, it's too busy for some reason, I'll skip a day. I don't feel terrible that I missed a day. It's a virtuous cycle. Yeah. The more I do it, the more I crave it, You know, the more it's self-reinforcing. Yes. The same is true about being on a quest. Mm -hmm. I always say, begin before you're ready. That's how you overcome the fear is you just fucking right. do it. You know, you take that first step and the more you go on the journey, the more the journey draws you. And it doesn't really require a lot of effort. It's reinforcing. But you have to take action. You know, my experience is that if you do the work, success is assured. I can't tell you when or how it will happen. But if you do the work consistently, and by work, I just mean that you're on your quest, you're taking action, you're creating, you're conducting experiments, you're you're trying different things. You're not just sitting there fantasizing about what might be possible for you. Yeah. If you do the work, you will right. get results. You'll put yourself out there and you'll, you'll do what I call optimizing for serendipity. You know, the more you put yourself out there, the more possibilities right, right. can show up for you. And that's what happened for me. I just started putting myself yeah. out in the world. I didn't know what I was doing, but... <laughs> I, suddenly I started creating all these yeah. things. It reminds me of one of my favorite things I learned from Seem Taleb's yeah. book, Anti-Fragile, which is that options yeah. are a substitute for intelligence, that we don't have to choose mm -hmm. or decide so much if instead we put our energy right. into creating yeah. possibilities.
It's interesting that you use that language. For me, there's a real distinction between a decision and a choice. So a decision means literally to cut away. It's like the word incision means to cut in. A decision is to cut away. So when you make a decision, you're saying yes to something, but you're also saying no to something else. Choice means literally to taste or to test. So when we choose something, we're just testing it. We're tasting it. When you go on a quest, one of the ways you quest is you choose different things. You taste different things. You test different things. You say, I don't know if this is it. Let me taste it. Let me test it. Before you make a decision, you try different things. And then you find out, okay, this is yes. I know that this is part of what I want to create in my life. And this is no, I'm making a decision here. I'm cutting this away. I'm going to say no to that. That's not what I want in my life. And then there are some things where you say, you know, I don't know. Is this what I want? Is it not what I want? I'm going to have to create some experiments over here to see whether or not this is a good fit. So there's a real Mm -hmm. distinction there between Mm -hmm. choice and decision. That's beautiful. I like that. I'm very familiar with the tasting, you know, and kind of feeling into things. And I've always had kind of a problem, an aversion to decisions in a similar way that I had an aversion to discipline. Well, (laughs) you know, I feel more affinity for decisions than I do for discipline. Decisions are good. They've been very helpful to say no to things. In fact, I sometimes think I could do a better job of saying no to things. But, you know, a lot of what I'm about personally and as a coach is creating more possibilities. There is a challenge with that, though. You can be distracted by possibilities. Some possibilities are Mm -hmm. shiny objects, and that can lead you to being what I call opportunistic. The more you are creating, the more possibilities, the more options will appear for you. Some of those are shiny objects, and some of those are more congruent. So how do you decide which possibilities are right for you? On one hand, that can Mm -hmm. be about some discipline, right? About focus, steering the path. Stephen Pressfield writes about what he calls resistance and how the scope of the resistance is proportional to whatever it is that we are creating in our lives. And that we're always Mm -hmm. creating distractions for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I've certainly experienced that. But another piece that I want to talk to you about this is about intuition. Right. How does that play into what you're talking about is decisions, decision-making, knowing what's right, knowing what's distraction versus Mm -hmm. possibility, knowing what to cut away, Mm -hmm. knowing what to say yes to, right? How much of that is a rational thinking process versus a more intuitive feeling process for you? You know, I don't think of it that way, but I think it's probably a similar thing. The way I think of it is the more congruent I am, the more that feels like intuition. And what I mean by congruent Mm -hmm. is my sort of spiritual practice among many (laughs) spiritual practices. And by spiritual practice, all I mean is something that I do intentionally that is not designed to bolster my ego. So part of my spiritual practice is to attempt every day to the best of my ability to live in a way that is congruent and resonant with my essence 
And what I mean by that, as we've said, is am I showing up as my best self to the best of my ability? So Mm -hmm. going back a little bit to how do you decide, one of the ways that I decide is Mm -hmm. I ask myself what I call the three essence questions. The first question is, will this create a life I love? The second question is, this my best way of serving from my essence? Because I do believe that we're all here to offer something. Your essence is your natural way of adding something of value to the world. So it's important to me that I'm showing up in a way that could be helpful, you know. And then the third question is, who will I become? Because every time we decide something and whatever journey we go on and whatever we create in the world, we're going to become a different kind of person. And my aspiration is to become a better human being. So I ask myself, if I do this, will I become a better human being? You know, am I going to become a greedy asshole? I don't want to be a greedy asshole. I've been a greedy asshole already. That didn't work. We've been Mm -hmm. talking a lot about being on a journey. It's interesting to ask yourself what that journey is. I used to think of it in terms of the hero's journey. I don't think of it Mm -hmm. in those terms very often anymore, simply because I think it's been so poorly misunderstood. The idea of this heroic individual, I don't think is helpful. Here's the journey that I think I have been on. I think that we're all taught Mm -hmm. kind of a hidden curriculum for what will make us happy. Nobody says explicitly, this is what we're teaching you. But what we're all taught, either from our parents or our teachers or our peers or society or advertising, is what will make you happy is self-interest, status-seeking, scarcity, and survival. And you think about it. I mean, that's mostly what motivates what we do in our life. We're always looking out for ourselves. We want to look good. There's a core belief that there's not enough Mm -hmm. to go around. So I have to get mine as competition. If I win, you lose. If I get more, you get less, you know, that mentality. And survival, we're not going to starve most of us. There are still way too many people, obviously. But for most of us, it's not that kind of survival. It's survival Mm -hmm. of our ego. I lived that protocol for about 60 years and it didn't work. Mm -hmm. What I experienced was what I call succeeding by failing. You know, my life fell apart and that was the beginning Mm -hmm. of me creating a life where I could be happy. The journey that I've been on is from self-interest, status-seeking, scarcity, and survival to what I think of as essence, abundance, service, and trust. So abundance is just this realization that my essence is overflowing. If I give it the opportunity to show up in the world, I have so much to give. You know, what I'm trying to do is create a life that is big enough for my essence (laughs) to express itself. I feel abundant. The practice of gratitude is bone knowledge for me now. Like I wake up every day grateful for everything. Mm -hmm. And when I say everything, I mean everything. Like I'm grateful for my cancer. It's taught me a tremendous amount about what's really important in life. So essence, Mm -hmm. abundance, service, you know, again, that's generosity. And trust is really trusting your life. The reason I didn't create what I'm creating now is that I didn't trust Mm -hmm. that if I just showed up as my best self, the universe would support me. 
We're taught to distrust our best selves. We definitely are. It's a long journey. It's the journey of life. It took me a similar amount of time to get to the point where I felt anything close to free to express myself more completely. And for me, that expression is such a key part. You know, for you, it's essence. That was the inner transformation, beginning to speak Mm -hmm. more of who I am, to speak myself into being. Because, of course, early on in that process, I didn't even know what I wanted to say, but you just had to start saying, so to speak, start doing, start acting, start steering. And then along the way, we become more of Mm -hmm. ourselves. And that is what began Mm -hmm. to give me more hope. That was the light that fed the flower that it began to bloom into what eventually begins to feel like abundance. um, And as as you put it, gratitude for everything. I'm Um, really excited for you, Bowen, to see that you are creating this podcast and to see you writing so much more. My observation mm -hmm. would be that that's something about your essence. I draw a distinction between form and essence. Uh, Our essence can show up in many different forms. We live in a world of form. We live in a world of things and we create things. Those are all forms. The most insidious forms are thought forms, (laughs) you know, beliefs and identity and Mm, so forth. Writing is a really good discipline. Mm. It's a good essence practice because the challenge is to write something that's true. This has been a, a... practice for me. You know, I am working on writing a book about everything we're talking about. And it's a real challenge because Mm -hmm. when I write, I find that there are all these different voices. I wrote a lot of content for the coaching program, which, um, you know, Mm -hmm. I've made the whole course free. So if anybody is listening, Mm -hmm. you can take the whole course, you can go through it three times. There were Mm -hmm. three cohorts that were recorded on Zoom. And if you join the community, those are accessible there. I'm giving the entire program pretty much away for free. So there's all this writing there that I wrote for it. And I had a writing coach look at it. What she said to me is, Mm -hmm. there's three different voices here. There's the voice of the teacher, Mm -hmm. you know, the expert. And there's the voice of the coach. Mm -hmm. And then there's the voice of what she called the wise friend. And I like to think that my essence is more like the wise friend, you know. So I'm trying to rewrite things. I'm trying to really write from my essence, like write something as true as I can possibly say. You know, I think Hemingway said something like that. His aim was just to write one true sentence. Find that one true sentence and then, you know, write the true sentence and then write another one. Well, that's the key lesson of one of my main writing teachers is learn to write like you talk. And only from there can you get anywhere else. Yeah. There's the how of it. And then there's the where of it. Where do the Mm -hmm. words come from? Do they come from your heart? Well, learning to speak from the heart, learning to express my essence 
Uh, that's something, of course, I'm still very much in the middle of. I'm still in the process of trying to become who I am. It's a wonderful yeah. journey and a wonderful practice. A few minutes more here, but I want to wrap up as we're getting towards an hour. I'll just ask you this. Something else I've been writing a lot about lately is my own experience as mm -hmm. a man who is not a father. Do you have kids? You don't. I had two stepkids in a previous marriage. So we share this experience of not no. having our own biological kids. Can you tell me about your lifelong journey there? Was there a point when you considered becoming a father? Do you have any thoughts about not being a father and how that feels? Talk about that a little bit. For the longest time, I'd never really wanted kids. And the reason I didn't want kids is it was too scary. I was afraid of loving anything that much. I was afraid I wasn't enough. I didn't think I could take care of anybody else. I just, I didn't yeah, feel yeah, yeah. enough. It was too scary for me. Yeah. When I had stepkids, I had a mixed relationship with them. I mean, their father was in the picture and I didn't want to sort of muddy that. I didn't want to get in the way or have it be confusing for them. I got them when they were 10, 11, 12, sort of in their son and a daughter. Mm. I didn't have that closer relationship to them. I didn't want to get in the way of their relationship with their parents. I didn't really know how to be a stepfather. I didn't do a very good job. You know, I, I do wish I had done some things differently. I tried to be a friend. I tried to be someone who was there and was mm -hmm. supportive and non-judgmental and sort of stayed out of the way. And I'm not sure that that was the best choice. Now I'm with someone that I'm so incredibly happy with now that I do think sometimes, oh, I wish I'd met her 30 years ago and we had kids. You know, now I feel like I might be up for it. It's funny. We sort of joke about it, but we have some friends, a young sure. couple that we've kind of adopted, you know, but they're grown. They're like yeah. 40. <laughs> I do wonder sometimes what it would have been like to be a father. Mm -hmm. I have stage four prostate cancer. I was diagnosed in November of 2017. The default treatment for that is androgen deprivation therapy. The prostate cancer feeds off of mm. testosterone. So basically for the past yeah. almost five years, I've had zero testosterone. My testosterone is undetectable. I'm chemically castrated. I'm a eunuch. Mm. I have no sex mm. drive at all. It doesn't mean that we don't have sex. You know, I live with someone who's a very sexual being and we have pleasure and intimacy and all of that, but I don't have an instigator. You know, I have no sexual desire. Mm -hmm. That raises an interesting question. Am I a man? Great question. Beautiful question. I mean, certainly there's masculine and feminine energy. What does it mean to be a man? A bigger question when I was growing up was what does it mean to be an adult or what does it mean to be a human being? I grew up with three older brothers yes. and a father who was pretty masculine, sort of a big guy and, you know, loved motorcycles mm -hmm. and camping and outdoorsy stuff. And then a brother who was in the army and a brother who was a football player and a brother who was a womanizer, all things that we associate mm -hmm. with masculinity. I was none of those things. For me, you know, being a man, when I think about that, I think of it more about mm. maybe being principled or being an advocate mm. or being courageous or something like that. 
obviously women have all those qualities. So what right. does that mean? I think more about being an adult or what is a good human being, you know? Yes. It is a, something I think about a lot and, and written about. I mean, yeah. in exploring my own self as a man and where I've landed with it lately is in the same place that many or most of the distinctions that we've grown up with about what's considered more stereotypically masculine or feminine, that most of those are the result of recent human conscious acculturation, you know, the last several centuries or whatever. Mm -hmm. And not that those things aren't real. Um, and not that there aren't some things that, of course, derive or relate to our biological bodies, that there aren't some behavioral differences, but that most of what we live with day to day or that we've grown up with thinking of as these differences, yeah. again, is acculturation. And that any list of attributes or qualities that are more or less mm -hmm. masculine or feminine or whatever and with another 10 seconds consideration, you know, we realize that these are all That's qualities right. that any person could have. There's always a lot of talk in the world of kind of new age relational psychology about masculine and feminine mm -hmm. energy. And in that world recently, the way people are trying to look at it is like, well, you know, we're calling these things masculine energy, but we just mean that there are different energies. And of course, anyone can have masculine energy. And so, well, then why even call yeah. it masculine and feminine energy? You know, I think there is something when we're talking about relationship, sure. about polarity and about dichotomies, you know, opposites attract. There's something about how humans work that we have the yin and yang. We're not all everything. Yeah. So fair enough. While I certainly think of myself as a man, I think of myself more as a person. Exactly. Me too. If you think about it in terms of relationships, I think of it as a dance. You know, yes, we dance, yes, we sort of pass absolutely. energies back and forth. Sometimes I show up in my relationship in a more masculine way, and sometimes my beloved does. I live with a very powerful woman. Right. One of the things I love that makes it such a strong relationship is I feel she's very resonant. She meets my energy. And so we, mm. we have this sort yes, of dance yeah. where we can exchange energy and she can be very strong at times. One of the things that I think endangers many relationships is the need for people to be right. Sure, sure. I love to change my mind. That's something that helps me a lot. <laughs> I have learned to respect the fact that my beloved is right most of the time and that I have something to learn from her which is, by the way, another of my spiritual practices. Being open to that doesn't bolster my ego, but it does make me a better human being. Again, the way that I've digested that is yep. that I love to change my mind. And and the little trick that sort of helps, you know, feed the ego is like, well, when That's I right. do, I get to be right again. Yeah. <laughs> now, you know, That's it's just true. sort of a humorous thing, but we don't get to be everything. And so whatever we call it, there are some things that we're not going to be. That brings it back to this mm -hmm. question of fatherhood. Yeah. And it's something that's helped me to, to digest my own experience, which is that, you know, we're right. not all called to be fathers. I was not called strongly enough, clearly, because another one of my operating principles, right, is to yes. observe myself yeah. in the wild. 
if I'm wondering who I am Mm -hmm. and what my beliefs are, one way to find Mm -hmm. out is by looking Mm -hmm. at how I behave. And if I had been called to become a father more strongly, I'd be one. I'd be one. And so it's helped me to understand that, hey, I don't get to be everything. Right. I don't get to be a woman either. I don't get to be Elon Musk or Dolly Parton. There's just many things that we don't get to be. Maybe being a father was something that you wanted to want. Well, at times I did, yes. That's a, that is precisely also true. And as you brought in, there are other ways that we get to be fathers in the world. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, my way of being a father is I really love working with people who are young at whatever it is they're creating. Uh, nice. I find satisfaction in that. I don't have to be mm-hmm. a father. I don't have to have kids to, to do that. You know, and I feel more like a man in a way now without any testosterone than I did when I was very Mm -hmm. much a sexually active and voracious being. So it's an interesting question. What is our relationship to these energies? Yes. In the end, I think that feeling like a man is feeling like a person, a person that was born biologically male. I'm a man. That's it. There's nothing else that I need to arrive, you know, to be defined as a man. Beautiful. Well, thank you for bringing all that in. So just in closing, two quickies. One is just so we hear it from you, because of course I'll have this in the show notes, but where can people find you and your programs online? My website is futurosity.com. That's F-U-T-U-R-O-S-I-T-Y.com. When I was thinking it up, I was thinking future and curiosity. If you go to futurosity.com, you can get on my mailing list, or you can just Mm -hmm. email me at robert at futurosity.com. If you're interested in the coaching program, if you're a coach, the entire program is Mm -hmm. free. I have a community platform. If you email me, I'll send you an invitation and you can watch the videos. The only thing that I charge for is what I call the Master Coach Program. Well, I'll give you a closing question, but I just want to say thanks, Robert. And it's great to see you. And I really appreciate the time and the opportunity to reconnect with you and to speak about both about coaching and about some more personal things. I really appreciate the invitation to be on your podcast. And also, it's great to reconnect with you. I was really pleased to see that you're writing again, and expressing your best self in the world. Thank you. Just to close, is there anyone out there, this is Uh, what we would have called a hero, right? But we've moved past heroes. They're just people that we admire, you know? Is there someone that you admire? Someone who you think of as, yes, more of that. (laughs) There is a Tibetan teacher in Pacific Grove. His name is Kenpo Karten Rinpoche. I'd been looking for a teacher or a group or something to meditate with. And Zen is too austere for me. And I didn't want to do sort of new age something. And so I'd looked and looked and looked and I had, hadn't found anything. But I get this email newsletter. And there was a story about this Tibetan teacher has meditation on Sundays. And so the first time I did it over Zoom and there was something about his energy 
it felt to me like pure essence, just a lightness. And mm -hmm. so we started going in person every week. You know, I love to ask that question because there are people Absolutely. like this all yeah. around us. And it's been fruitful for me to tune into those signals as examples. I stumbled on this idea in Chinese medicine called penetrating divine illumination, mm -hmm. which just by mm -hmm. itself just is so beautiful. What penetrating yes. divine illumination is, it's the idea that just in the way you experience the healer, you feel better before you even mm -hmm. take the medicine. And that's my aspiration yes. to become the kind of person that just when you're around me, we can be together and we feel better just because we're together. We don't have to do anything in particular. We just feel better. What it brings up for me is that I had a vision of what mm -hmm. love means to me. And it also came to me in three words, and it's very similar in a way to me. Love is breathing Ooh. colorful attention. <laughs> I love that. That's really great. And yeah. as I say that, I can Beautiful. feel it. I can feel breathing mm -hmm. colorful attention. And that is what I hope to be and hope to transmit and hope to be in. That's beautiful, Bowen. That's really, that's really wonderful. That's great. Mm -hmm. That's what these beacons are, right? They're beacons of what love is. Yeah. The energy of love. Yeah. Essence. Yep. Same thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, that's why I dialed you up because I've always seen you, Robert, as a beacon of love. So Thank you for that. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. It's really great to reconnect with you. A pleasure. A real pleasure. I'm glad to see you, you well and thriving and working and being. So thanks again for the time today, Robert. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. He's lost in love. He's lost in Hey everybody, thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do share it with a friend and make sure you're subscribed at decidenothing.substack.com where all of my writing and audio lives. By the way, this is the second episode that I've edited using this incredible new audio tool called Descript. It not only transcribes recorded audio automatically and allows me to edit like it's in a word processor, it also uses text-to-speech to magically create a facsimile of my voice in sections like this right here. It's been a big upgrade so far, and I'd recommend checking it out if you do any editing of spoken word audio. Most of all, if this brought something up for you, if you felt something, if you have a reaction, if you have some thoughts or suggestions about topics you'd like to see me explore in the future, please do leave a comment there on the Substack site. Of course, you can also reach me by email at bdwelly at gmail.com or on social media. Just search for Bowen Dwelly. Thanks again for being here, and I hope you tune in again soon. We're lost in love. We're lost in love. We're lost in love.